This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 11th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, addressing the problems of food insecurity across Arkansas. We've got food deserts in all 75 counties. And since the late 1990s, uh, we've seen a decrease in the number of grocery stores that are open across the state. Plus the village it takes to make a feature-length film on a small budget. So important to have people like Luis supporting me and like helping out with everything. His mom did all the catering for free, so the crew was able to eat. Diego Hoy is believed to be the first feature-length film made in Arkansas with a Latino producer and director. It's screened on the U of A campus tomorrow night. And a familial legacy of supporting culture. I grew up dusting in his museum. You know, I've witnessed him um, retrieve artifacts, uh, do field surveys. First the Hours News from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents live classical music Sunday, October 15th, showcasing world-renowned pianist Vadim Kolodinko, performing masterful renditions of classical compositions on the historical Van Cliburn Steinway concert piano. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of living options from apartments to village homes, plus a daily calendar of activities and events. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 11th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. This week on Ozarks at Large, we're celebrating the members that make this listener-supported program possible. All week, we've been giving away prizes as a way to say thank you for your continued support of KUAF. The week's going to culminate with an event at Black Apple on Emma Avenue in Springdale Friday night from 6 until 8. I hope you'll join us for the time together, trivia, and a chance to celebrate the generosity of our community. The state of Arkansas launched a task force last year to investigate the growing number of food deserts across the state. Last month, state and local leaders met in Little Rock to discuss the issue. Ozarks at Large's Josh Marvin reports what solutions are being implemented and what work is still left to do as all 75 Arkansas counties grapple with at least one food desert. Last month, state local, and private sector leaders met in Little Rock to discuss a growing issue across the state of Arkansas, food deserts. We spoke to Casey Cowan, the Director of Client Services at the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank, who describes food deserts as basically where someone has to travel more than one mile in an urban area or more than 10 miles in a rural area to get to fresh food. And what does this look like in Arkansas? Kathy Webb, the CEO of the Arkansas Hunger Relief Alliance, explains. Low income, low access areas as areas of the state where we no longer have grocery stores, where people are able to get a variety of uh, fresh produce. We've got food deserts in all 75 counties. And since the late 1990s, Uh, We've seen a decrease in the number of grocery stores uh, that are open across the state. Food deserts are a problem that has been getting worse in Arkansas for decades. The Little Rock Summit, on the other hand, started coming together 18 months ago when Webb spearheaded a state task force under former Governor Asa Hutchinson to begin addressing the issue. Obviously something we've talked about for a long time, but I think 
that there was growing interest in the in the issue. And when then Governor Hutchinson appointed the task force um, and we started to reach out to people across the state, we saw that um, because the problem seemed to be getting worse, uh, in the interest in solutions also was increasing. And just what are some of those solutions? First, the task force looked at what other states were doing for inspiration. I've looked at a lot of pieces of legislation that other states have passed um, to address this issue. And sometimes that's um, a revolving loan program for grocery stores. It's um, uh, establishing pilot programs. I think as we have seen more grocery stores close over the last 18 months, as we've really delved into this issue, um, we've seen similar situations uh, in a variety of states across the country. Even like in Kansas. Casey Cowan now. When their small grocery store closed, that they were, the community got together and decided to keep it to keep it open, you know, people are really having to get um, creative to keep some of these resources available. Arkansans are working on solutions, too. Like Sabrina Thede, the director of programs at the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank, who talked to us about the kind of conversations happening with grocery stores here. And saying, hey, let's, I know they've done it in Little Rock with the Kroger, um, and saying, hey, let's think about building something here and seeing what we can do to help our neighbors. But unfortunately, many communities in Arkansas simply do not have the funding to sustain a grocery store right now. Times are hard right now. And I mean, I'm not sure that they'd be able to handle like the cost of inflation on groceries and supplying their shelves. And so if that were to go out, then yeah, food insecurity would go through the roof in that small community. For Arkansas right now, um, we're in a position to where it would we would rely on the Charitable Food Network if, if something like that were to happen. Uh, we do love the idea of our, our government working together to create those things. I mean, that, that obviously would be really nice. Um, I just don't think we're there. We're not going to get a grocery store. Kathy Webb again. But there are other things that we could get that would allow our residents to have fresh groceries brought into our community. Zola Hudson, the mayor of Alzheimer, Arkansas, lives this reality in her own community. Neither one of us have a local grocery store, and any time that you're 10 miles or more from a major chain, then you're considered as a food desert, and that's what uh, Alzheimer's Walmart and Cheryl is. We spoke with her about the solutions she sees on the ground right now. So that we could have a mobile distribution system for ordering the foods and delivering the food to the three communities. Uh, We will have a van driver and one person to work the admin part of it to place the orders for the citizens and they would pay for their orders online. And uh, either they could have the admin person place the order for them or if they're computer savvy, they can place their own orders. And um, we're still in the planning phase of this and to try to get three communities connected to uh, participate in this as well. The Northwest Arkansas Food Bank 
also views food delivery services as a potential breakthrough in order to get food into people's kitchens. So um, those that um, don't have the transportation to get there, uh, we are working with folks to get deliveries out to them weekly so that they can have groceries at home. While new developments may be promising, it's clear there is still a lot of work to be done before food deserts are a thing of the past. I think one of the most important things is that it's not one size fits all. Um, and they could range from a uh, nonprofit coming in to organize a grocery store to an online ordering hub uh, with delivery into a community uh, or a mobile grocery store. Um, those were just a few of the solutions that people talked about. I hope that we are able to provide a place for everyone who is seeking assistance to go and be able to receive food. That is my hope. Um, and my hope is that we do that in a, in a variety of ways. As it stands, those working on solutions say they know what needs to be done, whether it's more mobile pantries, delivery services, or increased funding for grocery stores. Only one question remains. Whether or not we have the political will to make the decisions that will lessen hunger or that will increase hunger. And Mayor Hudson's message to lawmakers. Well, I would just hope that the representatives and the senators can come together to see how great the need is between the 75 counties and that they would uh, put something in place for us to be able to have access to help us to get these programs up and running for the community. Citizens just do not have um, the funding or being able to purchase cars and, you know, it's just uh, have everything that they need and they cannot just run into town two or three times a week or pay someone to do this for them. And I think that as time continues to go on, that hunger in the state will just grow more rapidly. From Ozarks at Large, this is Josh Marvin. And you may recall last month we aired a story about Square Meals. That was a first-ever project featuring 13 downtown Bentonville restaurants and coffee shops helping raise money for pantries affiliated with the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank. That effort, we're happy to say, raised $4,000 as part of Hunger Action Month. Every day, you hear lots of news on Ozarks at Large. But have you ever wanted to test your listening skills? Now you can with KOAF's Word Puzzle. It's just like your other favorite daily word games that feature five-letter words and color-based hints. But you might even get a hint from the previous day's Ozarks at Large broadcast. Go to KUAF's website or newsword.org slash KUAF to start playing daily puzzles now. Arkansas U.S. Senator John Bozeman says he expects the new farm bill will be passed by the end of the year or early next year. The senator spoke yesterday at the Rotary Club of downtown Little Rock, where he was joined by Arkansas Agriculture Secretary Wes Ward. Senator Bozeman is the ranking member on the Senate Agriculture Committee. The Farm Bill is reauthorized every five years, but expired on October 1st of this year. He says it's especially important for Arkansas's agricultural industry, which makes up roughly a quarter of the state's economy. What it does is allow farmers to have the risk management tools that they, that they need so they can go to the bank so they can borrow the money they need to go forward to know that, that there's a backstop. 
that there is a crop insurance program, the various other programs that allow them to have the, uh, the ability, like I say, to borrow the money and continue in business. Bozeman says Congress has allocated enough money to fund programs related to the Farm Bill through the end of the year. He says the new Farm Bill will likely have a price tag close to $1.5 trillion. Your payroll increases are being dramatic, your cost of equipment, all of that's gone on in farm country. So we've got to reset the risk management tools so that they're meaningful. If we don't do that, then we're, we're essentially going to plow on uh, you know, with tools that don't work anymore. So that's going to cost some money. Farm bill negotiations have stalled amid congressional battles over government funding and leadership in the House of Representatives. Despite that, Senator Bozeman says he expects the bill to be reauthorized by early 2024 at the latest. Fayetteville City Council has indefinitely tabled a resolution to purchase real estate in the city's historic black community and subsequently donate that property to a local African-American nonprofit. The city attorney advised the mayor and council that such a transaction would likely be unconstitutional. The proposal was made by the Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage Association, who is now working with a consultant, Emma Willis, to come up with a new resolution. Instead, what we believe is a more reasonable approach is to look at the progressive nature of the city of Fayetteville, understand who you have historically been in the black narrative here in the state of Arkansas, whereas most of our counterparts were sundown towns. Fayetteville allowed for black residents to take refuge, to build homes, and to have a quality of life. And because of that, we think it is something that is worth being preserved. And because of that, we are seeking to come back, be partners with the city, and draft a resolution that would allow for a local historic district. The district would be located in the Spout Spring Branch Willow Avenue neighborhood east of the Fayetteville Square. It was first settled after the Civil War. Willis says they will have to collect 360 signatures from property owners in support of a historic district to submit to the city for legal review. This is an opportunity to set a precedent. And the reason we're requesting partnership here is because this is not usually a conversation we have when it comes to preserving black spaces or historically black spaces. Willis is consulting with the city's Historic Preservation Office, as well as established African-American historic districts for insight. City council members plan to tour Fayetteville's Black District this autumn. Ozarktober is returning to downtown Springdale this weekend. Families can head to Turnbow Park on Friday night from 6 to 9 for free music, fall activities, hayrides, bonfires, and food, courtesy of the City Church NWA. The festivities continue on Saturday at Magnolia Gardens with live music and more. Marketing and Communications Director for the Downtown Springdale Alliance, Kyra Ramsey, says she is excited for the event to return to the venue. We have had this event there in years past, and we're bringing it back. It's such a great venue for this type of event. We're going to be hosting, oh gosh, I think about a half a dozen really incredible live performances by blues and bluegrass bands. Music starts at 2 and it runs until 9. And then we'll also have um, some beers and ciders there. Uh, Rice Barbecue is going to have a really great plated food available uh, for purchase. And all of the proceeds from Rice goes to a really uh, really cool cause. It's their Hogs for Cause fundraisers. Ramsey says bluegrass fans will not regret making their way to downtown Springdale Saturday. It's got some really incredible uh, bands lined up. So I think if you're really into blues and bluegrass, 
you will be delighted. Tickets for Saturday's events are on sale now with a ticket level for an unlimited beer pass and commemorative stein as well. You can visit Eventbrite for purchasing and more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Yego Hoy is believed to be the first feature-length film to be produced and directed by Latino creators made in Arkansas. Yego Hoy, in English, that's He Arrived Today, will be screened tomorrow night in the Union Theater on the University of Arkansas campus. Sophia Ordaz, Cultural Programs Coordinator with the Multicultural Center at the University of Arkansas, says she's excited this free screening is open to the entire community, including students at the U of A. We get to interact with students who are on their own professional and life journeys. And our students are so, so, so talented. Um, I know that we have students who are um, budding videographers, um, screenwriters, uh, creative writers of all um, genres. They're all going to be really anticipate, anticipating tonight's or Thursday's screening because it's an incredible opportunity to connect with an Arkansas-bred creative team um, who realized an amazing feat like producing a feature-length film. Both director David Cruz and producer Luis Hernandez are scheduled to be at the screening, as well as part of a reception tomorrow night at 5 before the movie, then participate in a Q&A after the film. Yesterday, I talked with David and Luis by Zoom. They met while enrolled in the film program at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway. Producer Louise says they share a similar do-it-yourself aesthetic, something he says is necessary when making a feature-length film on a very tight budget. We want something. It's not like, oh, that's really impossible. It's like, okay, how do we do it? Or how do we get the closest thing to that? So it's like, I mean, when David came to me wanting to yego to produce it, I mean, first I read the script, all that kind of stuff, whatever. But besides that, it's like, all right, what resources do we have? What can we use like that's accessible to us? And then we eventually got into some other things about getting money and all that kind of stuff. But generally it was first, I think with ambition, it's just do whatever, like write whatever you think is good enough for the story and then try to figure it out from there. And if you have to dial it back down a bit, you do. But I mean, it's just seeing what we have, like the community is super supportive and stuff. So I think that was just like a given. David Cruz says he knew he had to make the film. The desire to make it kept him awake at night. And he says just one of the attractions to the story was the opportunity to make a film that crossed genres. Marta, a mother who's kind of waiting to reunite with her son and smuggle him back to the States, um, when the day finally arrives, like an uninvited stranger shows up at her doorstep. So she has to kind of deal with that and kind of piece everything together. It's a thriller, mystery, comedy. I mean, it's it's. I think it's exciting. Uh, I think people are really going to like it. Both men stressed the movie could only become reality with deep support from crew, friends, and family. David Cruz says the support of family extended to who he cast in the film. Yeah, I have to work with what I have. So, like, I ended up casting my parents in the lead role. So I wrote the uh, the two roles for my parents specifically. It's like I knew my dad kind of had like this classic Mexican cinema look to him. 
So I was like, I'll, you know, I'll just rely on his face. And then my mom, you know, she's on stage. So she's a little more um, vulnerable and she's used to being in front of hundreds of people. So I was like, I rely on her, you know, she's the one who's going to deliver the lines. So, I mean, um, as far as for the characters on this one, I really had to just kind of engineer it to them. You know, I wasn't really able to like do anything too crazy. And producer Luis Hernandez says the generosity of time from so many people essential to finish the movie. His parents were willing to do that and all the rehearsing and all the long days and all that kind of stuff to even the crew of a lot of people we weren't able to pay to people letting us use our restaurants and our stores and whatnot. So I, I think it's, um, yeah, I think it just shows how much support we have and like without any of it, this wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am I'm. needed Luis and Amalia, my producers. I needed everyone. Um, it was, without them, it's, there would be no foundation. Like it would be, you know, I wouldn't be here. So it was so important to have people like Luis supporting me and like just helping out with everything. His mom did all the catering for free. So the crew was able to eat and like, I'm, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff just like, you know, wants to make me cry, but it's like, I'm so, yeah, I'm just, you need, especially when you do indie film, you really need the, these kinds of people that you can't really do it all by yourself. I did a lot by myself, but also like there was other people wearing multiple hats. Um, and that's what you kind of need to, to make progress. And I feel like in this industry. David and I have very different characteristics in the way we work or things like how we view things sometimes. But I think it's a it's a healthy thing because I, I guess when we describe David's like a raging bull, it's uh, a lot of energy, a lot of motivation. And sometimes you just got to help direct it. And like, like I think that's a, a way I help a lot. Um, but same thing with him. It's like some, sometimes if you're just by yourself doing a project, you get discouraged. It's super hard. X, Y and Z, all these plans you had just fail in the last second. And it's like if you don't have some sort of foundation or group of people that are like have this exact same goal or want to finish the thing, it's, it's really hard to do it by yourself. The free screening of Diego Hoy is tomorrow night. There is a reception beforehand in the Ann Kittrell Gallery. That's in the Arkansas Union on the University of Arkansas campus. That begins at five. The film is shown in the Union Theater, basically next door to the Ann Kittrell Gallery. The screening starts at six. The Q&A with David Cruz and Luis Hernandez follows the screening. Sophia Ordaz, cultural programs coordinator with the Multicultural Center at the University of Arkansas, says all of this, the screening, the reception, the Q&A, part of the center's mission. We always talk about um, Latino or Hispanic Heritage Month and how we can best recognize it. I think one of the most meaningful ways to celebrate this month is to pay attention to the cultural production and the livelihoods of the Latinos, Latinas, Latinas that are in your local community. So this is a great way of showing up and expanding your circle and showing your support for, you know, DIY film and for Latina creatives in our state. And tomorrow's screening is free, but you are asked to reserve a ticket on Eventbrite. David Cruz and Luis Hernandez say they're in the process of setting up other screenings around the state, and they'd like to have the film available through a streaming service soon. This is Ozarks at Large. The Momentary in Bentonville presents Wu-Tang Clan, Saturday, October 28th. This multi-platinum Grammy Award-nominated hip-hop group will perform live, outdoors on the Momentary Green, as part of the Momentary's Live on the Green series. Tickets at themomentary.org. 
The military wing of Hamas has threatened to execute an Israeli hostage for each Israeli airstrike without warning that targets civilians in Gaza. For a man with family missing, that threat is too much to contemplate. I think I'm just choosing to ignore this. I think that those hostages are the most precious thing that Hamas has right now, and I think that they will keep them safe. The families of missing Israelis on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Morning Edition, tomorrow morning from 5 to 9. Earlier today, we did an old-school call-in giveaway on the airwaves as a way to celebrate the members of KUAF. The ninth caller today won a tote bag full of CDs, posters, movie passes, and gift cards from some of our underwriters here at KUAF. That ninth caller was Josh Ledbetter from Fayetteville. I caught up with him on the phone afterwards. Tell me a little bit about your listening relationship with KUAF. How long have you been listening to the station? Um, I've been listening for the last two years. Uh, I lived in Missouri for seven years in between living in Fayetteville. The last two years, it's, it's been my only news source. <laughs> listen to it in the morning on the way to work and listen to it on the way home. I'm really excited that uh, that you spent some time listening to Ozarks at Large uh, this afternoon. I think you told our general manager that you never win anything. No, I've never won anything on the radio. <laughs> never really called in before. <laughs> well, what was the inspiration for you to call in today? I had to go and pick up some lunch while I'm at work, and I had it on, and I heard the ninth caller kind of, I don't know, just felt right and just called in. I love it. Well, Josh, tell me a little bit about, so you say you tend to listen in the morning and the afternoons to Morning Edition and All Things Considered, I assume. Um, what is it about What is it about NPR that you treat it as, you know, the, the way that you take in news? This may sound bad, but I mean, it's the only one that I've listened to or read about where it just doesn't feel biased one way or the other about any topic. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think that's, I mean, that's kind of one of our driving factors here at KUAF, too, is we want to just bring you the news and you get to make the decision on where it lands, right? I think that's something that I hear a lot of folks talk about with NPR's coverage of the news. Yeah, that's what I appreciate about it. I mean, there's no, doesn't make anybody feel like they're being victimized or anyone's at fault for anything. Just kind of show up for what it is and make your own decision. Absolutely. Um, Josh, uh, I got to ask you, if you got a movie pass, what what do you think is something you're wanting to see? <laughs> uh, me and my wife have been really wanting to go and see a scary movie, so probably The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Josh, I really appreciate you taking some time to listen to KUAF. Uh, I'm glad that it's a place where you feel like you can get good, reliable news coverage day in and day out. And congratulations on finally being a radio winner. It's, uh, it's, it just takes one time, right? That's right. This is Ozarks at Large. The Stigler Lecture Series in Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Arkansas is returning after a pandemic-created hiatus. On November 1st, Diane Yupi, the director of the Montana Cultural Resource Department and Tribal Historic Preservation Order, 
will deliver this year's talk at the Fayetteville Public Library. She works to catalog and repatriate Native American cultural items and human remains. Yesterday, I reached her and asked her what she most wants to impress upon an audience when speaking. It's always a hard thing because the majority of the people I work with are uh, federal agencies or institutions who who maybe um, haven't been raised with the upbringing and, and being around sacred sites that are embedded on the land who continue to use these sites or either people in institutions who handle objects who weren't raised with those objects. So the understanding of of intangible connection is a difficult one. And and I don't believe that I'm entirely successful on doing that because I often have to um, share experiences and and do it without manipulation. And it's, it's almost like having people wanting to believe you that your belief is real, you know, and it's a it's a tough thing. Um, to try to explain that to people that this is real it's real to us and should it not have worked our way of life not have worked we wouldn't be doing it but it does work for us and we continue these practices and even if it's in a light that it's historic or prehistoric practices um, like building cairns or stacked rocks um, there's still it still serves a as great of a purpose as it did then you know what what we've learned from um so mostly just impactful that being respectful. And I think respectful is such a generalized word in what I want to impact people. Um, the sensitivity of these items or these places are very much sacred uh, to us today. You mentioned that most often it's someone who doesn't have, you know, the the, the background or the history that you have. So I imagine these are conversations that have to have Obviously, they're emotional. Obviously, they're historic. And there has to be, I am guessing, a certain amount of diplomacy, perhaps? Well, uh, cultural practitioners, you know, there's there's many of the, the elderly who have witnessed, and, and some of them are gone. A lot of them have passed that generation, who witnessed their parents or their grandparents doing uh, cultural practices and then also during the time of when they were being taken away mm. you know when it was uh, it was illegal to to pray um, and create sacred sites and and to have these sort of uh, sacred objects in your possession um, and so our parents so that was our grandparents but our parents either either had it in full effect of their cultural upbringing or they didn't, you know, either their grandparents or their parents were um, in boarding schools and had the culture sort of stripped from them. And then they raised their, their children like that, which is our parents today. So either our parents missed it or they didn't get it. Um, I mean, or they were raised with cultural upbringing. So my generation, we're fortunate to say if our parents were, chose to live this way of life, a Lakota, Dakota, Nakota way of life. Um, we're fortunate to say, since we were born, we've been living this cultural practice because we're fortunate to have parents that wanted to raise us this way. And that could be speaking, singing, um, having a, um, something 
something as significant as dreams, you know, and then taking on responsibilities and our, our traditional practices and, and not being afraid to explore spirituality, uh, to be near these sites, to recreate these sites, to experience these sites, handle these objects, speak to these objects, and then be the one to bring these objects or these people, ancestors, whichever home. Um, so it, it has to come with experience. You know, I don't, I don't think spirituality hands out a gold star. Um, <laughs> but, but we definitely want to want to prepare ourselves, you know, should that have ever happened for us. Um, and a lot of it is, is trusting um, our younger generation, you know, not withholding it as an, an elderly or even in, in my age, not holding and trying to be a gatekeeper of knowledge. It's, it's being able to exercise that so that our younger people are going to take these on and we're not going to be the only ones to have this right or the only ones to um, have this knowledge. And then when we pass, it's all gone. No, we want to share that responsibility because somebody has to pick it up. And we definitely want to have a, a great transition when that does happen. Sure. I mean, for 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 some cultures it's it's just there, right? It's it 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 might be altered or modified, but it wasn't interrupted. So that is, you know, thinking right about that. So it can keep it can continue, right? Yes. And and we more so well, in my my experience or in my upbringing, uh, my dad has always shared that this way of life isn't necessarily always for us, the living, the humans. It's 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 meant for an interaction or a connection to the other side, the other camp. It's it's acknowledging our ancestors, what they've done, accomplished um, kept for us, shared with us, whether it's knowledge written in the stars, you know, oral history that's embedded in the ground, but, but never to forget that it's, it's our practices today and whether we want to practice or not is going to be the biggest influence on those yet to be born. This way of life and our practice is for those who have yet to be born. So it's, it's, uh, it's however, I'm going to explore my spirituality, be courageous, be brave, or advocate for the protection of being able to just practice in general the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota way of life. It's for those yet to be born. When when you are having the conversations with representatives from the agencies or the institutions, and you're talking about these sacred items, these these very important items, how how do you know who to contact, and how do you know that they may have possession of something that is very important or very sacred? It comes in um in multiple ways. Um, so last year, I I took a staff and some council members to University of Montana in Missoula, um, and we repatriated items. Well, the repatriation process had started uh, quite some years ago, and and it just came to a point of coming there and saying, we're going to take something home. We have to take something home. Let this be an agreement that you will prepare the rest of our stuff 
um, anything that's a, affiliated and associated with Fort Peck tribes, you'll gather it together and we're going to consult on this and to a point where we get to take it all home. So when we went down to the collections, you know, uh, we've interacted with everything, everything that's associated with Fort Peck. And then we found things that were labeled Fort Peck, but they didn't belong to us. They were the motifs and the symbols that were on them. It definitely was somebody else. So we left them, but we definitely took all of ours. Um, and in the public statements after that, you know, we didn't leave nothing behind. Um, the public statements after that, and it, this came from the chairman and my advisors, you know, let this be a notice to all the other institutions, you know, that we're going to come for our stuff. You know, repatriation in general, NAGPRA wasn't, it's not the most successful process, but it shouldn't have to take years, even with our names stamped on the item. It shouldn't have to take over 20 years to repatriate things. And then the same thing for um, well, that one, that story, that one story got a lot of good coverage. And then I recently had, hey, Diane, I have some things from this institution or this university, and we just want to reach out and, you know, congratulations on good, successful NAGPRA repatriations and, you know, so forth. So I, I think that that really helped a lot. Um, also, a small excerpt in the Washington Post about our visitation to the Smithsonian and, um directly after the visitation with the Smithsonian uh, collections, um, that was pretty hard to hear that it could take years, even generations, till people get to repatriate something. And I couldn't understand. I followed everything in the repatriation policy. So we, we visited, my delegation and I visited with Senator Tester, where we were able to um, encourage and advocate for some language that's been secured in the legislation. It still has to pass House and Senate, but we're really hopeful that it's in a good, secure place. And therefore, uh, repatriation at the Smithsonian should come a lot easier with that new language. Um, so that's just one part of the sacred objects, but sacred places, um, it definitely takes agencies to do a one-on-one. -on -one. I realize when we're not in a full consultation with, with a lot of other tribes, a lot of other um, different agencies, mindsets, without maybe the archaeologist and a biologist, and I can just take the agency, the decision maker, to a sacred site and say, hey, I want you to take a couple deep breaths. I, I want to help you understand why this is sacred, why your project can't dig underneath, over the top, right through it and why I can't pick it up and move it. It doesn't mean the same. That the spatial relationship that we have designated in this specific place is for a purpose and for a reason. Should something adversely affect this or bring impacts to the site, this is what it's gonna do. You know, and and just being able to take the time and and encourage mutual understanding that I understand you. I understand you need a project. And you understand that this place, this may not be the place for it to happen. You know, like, let's have this mutual understanding. I think, I think these opportunities to educate come on its own and, and definitely around my schedule because it works out so great. <laughs> uh, the timing of, of most of these. Um, but I, I believe that this year more than ever have, have I ever been tested with patience and educating a multitude of, 
um, audiences, all ages, um, all upbringings, um, different professions. You know, so I'm I'm really fortunate. Um, I'm really fortunate for all of that time to be able to educate people. Do you think speaking to an audience in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and to a couple of classrooms in Fayetteville, Arkansas, can can make a difference? It can have a, a sort of ripple effect at all? You know, most definitely. Um, so when my dad was in this position, he's the one that encouraged me to go into anthropology. Well, specifically archaeology and, and museum studies, because those were the professions that would challenge him, you know, um, pre-NAGPRA, pre-cultural um, um, resource ordinance for the tribes, uh, our own cultural resource ordinance laws. So so going into those classrooms, when I was in Fort Lewis College in 2014-2015, I was, I was one of only Native American students in those anthropology, archaeology classes. You know, that that showed me um, where we needed to be thriving a little bit more. You know, even if they weren't from my tribe, you know, I was happy to see even just one other Native American in there, you know, because I, I wasn't the only one struggling either. It seemed like other walks of life were able to grasp the idea of, of different theories and and practices of anthropology and how people came up with research and I realized that it paralleled a lot if people had a a question um, they would go through all this research and this scientific observation and and have conclusions whereas I I felt I feel that I paralleled that because we have a ceremony where we just ask we put ourselves through protocols and we um, put ourselves in some sort of solitude out in the, the hills in a specific location. And, and we talk to creator ourselves and say, creator, this is my question. And the deities and the beings will come and, and share that. You know, that's so real to me. So, so I couldn't grasp the idea sometimes or conform to academia world and and trying to teach me about anthropology when we have ceremonies that parallel Hmm. you know the understanding of life itself creation stories where did we come from you know what what are we made of and and i wholeheartedly believe those um i believe in in other creation stories and a scientific world but but i know who i am and i know where i come from you know, and, and I, I'm definitely going to believe that and teach, you know, my nieces and nephews the same thing. You, you used the word patience a, a, a bit ago. How much patience do you have to have when, you know, talking and trying to repatriate sacred items? I mean, I, I just... I. There has to be a fine line sometimes between patience and frustration, I would imagine. Oh, most definitely. Um, so my patience definitely came from maturity. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've definitely matured in the past few years. Um, but I think it. I think when you become open-minded, um, and man, do you ever have to be grounded in spirituality? Do you ever have to have your 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 base and your foundation be built on on spirituality because 
it, it took me a while to understand and, and accept that everything happens for a reason. There's no coincidences in our way of life. So if, if, if repatriations did not happen for my dad, you know, 20 years ago and 15 years ago, um, it wasn't meant for then. You know, that time frame wasn't meant for then or him. And it's, it's been coming at a, almost an alarming rate for myself. Um, getting notices of human remains and the repatriation of items. I mean, it, it seemed that NAGPRA has been trending in this past year, like really hard. Um, I've, I'm spending more time doing uh, NAGPRA related research than my own tribal historic preservation office duties, you know, so it's a really, it's become a really big juggle uh, for priority but the patience, I definitely believe it comes from accepting and understanding that it's going to happen when it's supposed to happen. There's going to be remains and items that maybe won't be repatriated in my lifetime, but it's not meant for me. It's not meant for me either as a woman or my own spiritual practice, or it's not meant for my generation to have yet to have those objects or to open those objects those remains to be in my care, my flight, to re be reburied in, in my understanding and spiritual protocols, it, it could be the one after me, or it could be the one that's coming yet. And like I said, the one that has yet to be born, you know, it could be waiting for them. And I'm wholeheartedly going to accept that, you know, I can't force it beyond um, doing my best, you know, and, one of those biggest challenges and, and what the world can experience with me is, is Smithsonian. Should I not get over the over a thousand items in my journey as a cultural director? Um, maybe it, it'll, maybe I'm setting up language and, and a path for the next person who's going to be in this position. You know, I haven't quite met anybody who paralleled my upbringing um, I don't believe that there's another tipple who raised a tipple, a tribal historic preservation officer. Um, the one of the the things that people often enjoy hearing, or or um, my colleagues that I that I work with and who who previously worked with my dad, you know, they've watched me grow up, and and it's. It's really not an exaggeration. I literally grew up under the consultation table with my dad. Um, I, I'm the youngest of, of his children and I didn't have the babysitter. So my mornings were sleeping under his desk until my head start session started in the afternoon, you know, with his secretaries fixing my hair and washing me up. Um, I, I grew up dusting in his museum. You know, I've witnessed him um, retrieve artifacts uh, do field surveys, um, have the be out in the field with the elderly who who have all passed. I've I've watched him in this job and create this job for the tribes, and his lifelong work. I I believe he wanted to instill these practices and in, in this passion that he had for protecting culture and protecting the rights of of Native American people. Um, I believe he wanted to instill that in, in me and, 
and of course he's he's taught his other children um, an extensive amount of cultural practices but but the schooling and the efforts it all came from him you know this is this is a true legacy and and I'm so fortunate to be one of if not the only in the nation to have this type of story Diane Yupi is the director of the Montana Cultural Resource Department and Tribal Historic Preservation Order. She'll deliver the 2023 Stigler Lecture in Anthropology and Archaeology. Her talk will be November 1st at the Fayetteville Public Library. We spoke yesterday via Zoom. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Callum. I'm Matthew Moore. It is KUAF Member Appreciation Week. And we're, I mean, we appreciate our listeners and our financially contributing listeners 52 weeks a year. That's right. But this is a week where we especially take time to highlight how important and how vital your time and your commitments and your resources are to making it possible for us to bring you things like Ozarks at Large, The Pick and Post, The Generic Blues Show, all of these things that you rely on locally here, as well as the national programming, like All Things Considered, Morning Edition. It's possible because of contributing listeners just like you. And this week will conclude Friday night at Black Apple Cidery on Emma Avenue in downtown Springdale. That's right. Uh, we're going to have, we invite you to come and, uh, you know, share fellowship and all that with us. We're also going to have a bit of trivia for prizes. That's right. And um, listeners to Ozarks at Large are getting a leg up. That's right. Yep. Monday, there will be five category, four, five categories, each with four questions that night. And Monday, we gave you a preview question and answer to the subject of 1973, since mm-hmm. we're celebrating 50 years of KUAF this year. Yesterday, it was an NPR trivia. Yep. So today, it's KUAF trivia. Okay. All right. So the question is, what National Book Award winner recorded weekly commentaries for NPR's Morning Edition at KUAF and recorded them on Reel to Reel? National Book Award winner. I have every week. This National Book Award winner would have a commentary on Morning Edition with Bob Edwards. I have no idea. Ellen Gilchrist, okay, who um, lived in Fayetteville later was on faculty. A Land of Dreamy Dreams was her book that won the National Book Award. She would record her weekly commentaries on reel to reel in what we called the large production room. <laughs> this was in the studio, not on Dixon Street. This is the one on Duncan Avenue. Ah. And uh, then we, PJ Rabowski, would record them. Put it in a box, and we would. I don't think we FedEx back then. What would we do? Probably, I think PJ may have taken it with uh, a couple of carrier pigeons. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> um, I think we. I think she drove it to the post office. Huh. Maybe UPS. Yeah. 
But anyway, so Ellen Gilchrist, and that's we'll have another preview question and answer for you tomorrow. The other uh, topics that are included in our trivia contest will be um, Northwest Arkansas trivia, mm-hmm. how it's changed over the last 50 years. And then questions about famous Emmas, since we'll be gathering on Emma Avenue. I love that. Okay. KUAF is celebrating Member Appreciation Week through Friday. We want to say thank you to the community that makes this public radio station possible. We've got something cool going on each day of the week. Tomorrow, Thursday, October 12th, coffee at the station. Join us at the KUAF studios for coffee from Rendition Coffee and Cocktails and breakfast pastries from 7 to 10 a.m. Drop by, meet some KUAF staff, and see what your support makes possible at the station. It's just one of the ways we're saying thank you during Member Appreciation Week here at KUAF. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the artificial intelligence program ChatGPT made a splash when it came on the scene last year, and it sent many schools into a panic about its possible uses. A new national study is identifying the risk, myths, and how to deal with this new technology in the classroom. So there appears to be you know, quite a big gap between what teachers think is happening and what students are actually doing. And schools um, have not provided guidance to teachers to help them navigate and uh, create a learning environment in which technology use is supported and fair and equitable and doesn't lead to this kind of adversarial relationship. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth talks to the co-author of a new study on technology concerns in the classroom. That's tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville. Contributors today included Josh Marvin, Jacqueline Froelich, Jack Travis, and the news team at Little Rock Public Radio. Josh, Jacqueline, Jack Travis, Josh Ledbretter was our winner today. This is this is a J kind of show. Today's show brought to you by the letter J. <laughs> today's show was produced by Matthew in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. My son's name is James. We got another J there. There you go. I got no J's in my family. That's all right. Yep. Uh, so Josh Ledbetter said he and his wife are going to go see Exorcist the Believer. Yes. <laughs> Have you seen the promos for that? The, the trailers? I refuse to watch scary movie promos because those tend to be scarier than the movies. Oh, my goodness. Well, all right, Josh. Let us know. Let us know how that went, because I'm not going to be watching that. No. What was the last scary movie you watched? It depends how you defend scary. Scary slash thriller, maybe? So, I love the old Universal horror movies. Hmm. Last night, I watched Frankenstein Meets a Wolfman from 1945. It was probably scary at that time. I don't know. I think the last scary movie I watched was Us. Did you see that? No. I saw the promo for it, the trailer. That was enough. No, I don't do scary. I don't do scary movies. All right, we'll be with you tomorrow. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville invites guests to discover American art, architecture, and 120 acres of Ozark nature. Visitors can also enjoy family activities and programs and a variety of food and drink experiences. General admission is always open to the public. More information at crystalbridges.org.